I don't really remember the thousand dollars I lost on that mutual fund, right? It doesn't mean anything. But I do remember my whole stock portfolio that I built subsequently because of that mistake. So that's my best piece of advice. Just be happy to fail. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Dennis Shapiro. Dennis is joining us from Freehold, New Jersey. He is a fund manager at SIH Capital Group, and he is an LP on a number of funds, including apartments, mobile home parks, self-storage, and ATM funds. Dennis also has two upcoming GP deals in the works, one of which is an affordable housing community, and the other is a short-term rental community. Dennis, thank you for joining us, and how are you today? Thank you, Ash, for having me on. It's awesome to be here again. Good. It's our pleasure, man. So before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah. So I gave a more detailed background last time I was on, so I'll keep it really, really short. So I've been investing in stocks for 20 years. The last 10 years, I've transitioned into alternative, but I've never pulled the cord on traditional. I feel that traditional alternative can complement each other really well if you have stocks and bonds, and then you also invest in private securities like real estate. So for the last 10 years, I've gone down the rabbit hole. I went from single family rentals and I quickly didn't really want to do anything with that. Then I went to note funds, ATM funds, life insurance policy. But then I feel like I had the gateway moment is when I went towards apartment building syndications. And once I went down that rabbit hole, I feel like everything else opened up for me after that. You found the holy grail, huh? Yeah, it was definitely when I first found it, I was like, oh, this is too good to be true. You get all the benefits of investing with a multi-million dollar property, but you can do it for as little as $50,000. I started with crowdfunding, so I was doing as little as like 10000 That was a disaster on itself, but it was hard to believe that you could literally get all the benefits with a fraction of the investment. Yeah, the power of leverage. Dennis, when you say traditional alternative investments, what does that mean? So for me, traditionally is anything that's publicly traded and alternative is anything that's private. So I wrote a book on this alternative investment almanac and I was trying to find a pinpointed definition of what exactly is alternative because some people don't consider real estate alternative. So what I just came up with, the conclusion I came up with from all these different opinions is that it's just a matter of, is it publicly traded or privately traded? And that's it. When you started investing in multifamily, did you start as an LP in other people's deal? Absolutely. So besides my own single family rental and duplexes, when I got into the commercial real estate space, it was strictly as an LP. And my goal was just to become the best possible LP investor. Because truthfully, if that is the only thing you accomplish, you can be an extremely successful investor. You never really need to go the GP route, but if you just really hone in and become the best possible LP investor that you can be, it's extremely powerful wealth creating tool. Dennis, how does one become the best LP investor? Probably the easiest answer is investing with the best operators, but the journey is a journey. It's something that people need to understand. My first investment wasn't a good one. 
My second one was slightly better. And then after I had a dozen or so under my belt, I got the variables down packed. I knew which ones I wanted. I knew which markets I wanted to be in. I knew which markets I did not want to be in. I knew where I was overexposed, underexposed. So it's just time, knowledge, and experience. And it's not something that you're going to wake up and you're going to be like, wow, I'm a great LP investor today. It takes a while to get to that point. What made your first investment not a good one? Oh, so much. And you know what? It's easy to blame the operator. It's easy to blame the underwriting. But honestly, it was just me and my lack of experience. I did not know how to evaluate a deal. And it doesn't really matter who the operator was at that point or anything else. I should never have made that investment because I was not at the place where I should have been at that point before sending in that $50,000 or whatever the amount was. So the second part of that I guess the answer is what were the key variables that I learned that I kind of applied from the mistakes from that deal is not to invest in deals where the overwhelming majority are one bedrooms. So it might look like a big property, like a hundred units or 200 units, but if 80% of those are one bedrooms, you're never going to get high nineties occupancy. It's always going to be transitional. One bedrooms, people leave, they move in with a girlfriend, they need to upsize. One bedrooms are the most transitionary lifestyle unit composition. So you want to stick to the twos, the threes, and it's okay to have a couple sprinkled in, but when you're buying a complex and it's majority of one bedrooms, then you're asking for problems. Interesting. I've never heard that before, but that sounds like great advice. Makes a lot of sense. I think back to all the one bedrooms I rented or the studios that I rented. I was there for a year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Moved in with a roommate, moved in with a girlfriend. Yeah. That's a neat perspective. What else do you look for in GPs? Okay. So from an operator's perspective, a lot of things that I look for is I like to take the word conservative and I scrape it out because every deal gets labeled conservative. What I really look at is what is the range that they're projecting. I don't invest in any deals that project over 20%. I don't do many developmental deals. So my sweet spot and what I look for in IRRs is between 13 to 15. And what I found is the operators that tend to go for that 13 to 15 sweet spot, they tend to actually perform into the high teens and the 20s. And it's the operators that like when I did that crowdfunding, when I started out with crowdfunding, it was littered with a bunch of people who were projecting the 20s and the moon. And part of my inexperience was I was attracted to that. These days, I scraped that off the plate, unless it's an operator that I really, really know. If I get any deals from any operators that I don't have a relationship with, it starts with a two in front. I usually just delete it. Your crowdfunding experience, was that through one of the big platforms out there? And were you an LP on that deal? Yeah, I was a LP. The bottom line is it was a technology company disguised as real estate. And I feel bad because I was one of many investors that were basically, I don't want to use the word defrauded, but it's pretty close to that where the advertising and they were advertising on some of the bigger podcasts, well-established real estate podcasts as well, right before they shut down. And what you, as a real estate investor, you never want to hear, well, the company that you invested through because they didn't get a VC funding, then they're shutting down. then there's a big problem there. And it was a huge, huge, honestly, probably the biggest learning experience of my life was investing through crowdfunding where I thought it was better to do five, $10,000 investments than to do 150. 
And today that probably cost me $100,000, $150,000 in my net worth, that decision. So it's definitely in the syndication world, in the private securities world, you get what you paid for. And usually when they preach and they advertise, get into these deals at $10,000 or whatever it is, usually it's kind of a get what you paid for scenario. Yeah. And the way I look at it is if you're taking on $10,000 investments, that's a lot of accounting overhead. Why not just market yourself, get the fifty, dollars the $100,000 investments, right? If you have the track record, it shouldn't be hard to do. Yeah. But the problem was a lot of these operators that did get on these platforms didn't have the track record. Right. So they either had a sponsor on the team that had a track record or whatever the case was, but there's forums out there where you can clearly see how bad it is. And I have a lot of people that reach out to me from an investment perspective and say, what should I do to get started? Should I go that route? And I say, absolutely not. It's not that every platform is bad. Yes. My particular experience was really bad. But the bottom line is that when I started taking on that responsibility for myself and doing the vetting and calling the operators and learning some underwriting and doing all those skills, that skill and knowledge base transformed my whole career versus still being on a platform where I'd log in. Yeah, I'd have a really nice portal and I would see this beautiful pie chart, but I would have learned nothing in that process versus having those calls, having those conversations, building out my network and having people to actually go to for an opinion that actually means something. All of those things a crowdfunding platform cannot do for you. Yeah. And all of those things will help make you the best LP investor. Exactly. We'll get back to the show in a few minutes, but first some sponsors I'm confident you'll get some value in learning more about. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Mark your calendars for the best ever conference, February 24th through 26th, back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies building relationships, and quite frankly, having a lot of fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. You can get 15% off right now with the code BEC15 at besteverconference.com. That's the code BEC15 for 15% off at besteverconference.com. Dennis, how many different deals are you and LP on right now? Roughly. A few just went full circle, but I would probably say high single digits. So probably high single digits because I have an investment club that I do a lot of deals with. So I would probably say between 10 to 11. And do you spread your money out in different asset classes or is it all multifamily? 
No, we do. So with my investment club and my fund are two very, very different things. The investment club is a private fund with me and two other individuals, and they have very unique backgrounds. One of them is in crypto and the other one is in startup. So I personally wouldn't feel too comfortable investing in crypto or startup because I don't have that experience. I'm a commercial real estate guy, but when they offer something to the club, I have complete confidence in them. So it allows me to have a more diversified portfolio. But when it comes to the actual fund that I actually administer, all of that stuff basically is commercial real estate. If you find a really good operator, why not just go all in on that one operator? Keep doing Uh, more deals with them. I think it's like a life cycle. I think at first, when you're new, I think the first couple of years, it was exciting to get on calls with new operators and especially well-established operators. Like I remember the first time I spoke to Joe and some of the other big operators, it was fun. It was an experience and it was worth those conversations. And it was worth doing a lot of deals with a lot of different operators. Now that the deals went full cycle and now that you have an evolved portfolio, now it does make sense for me to be more selective. And I do go all in on selective operators. Like for our fund that we administer, we only have four operators. But those four operators gives us exposure to almost 196 properties out there. So we're still really well diversified. But if I was earlier on in my career, I wouldn't advise it. But I feel like after you go the full cycles, then you could kind of apply your 80-20 principles. And then at the end of the day, then it, it becomes okay as long as those operators are well diversified. So if you're doing a fund of funds or something like that, so you're not putting all your eggs in one specific property with one specific operator. Got it. And are you doing that now, a fund to funds model? We do two things. With SIH Capital Group, we have a income fund. And the goal is literally just to provide the highest possible income from day one and for it to be consistent. But those returns are capped. And then for our email list, we'll do the deals that we GP on. Those deals we will offer to our investor list and they get access to the full total returns. So I always like to say it, if you invest in the fund, you get less potential returns, but you get a well more diversified portfolio to back those returns. And they're good for those specific goals. Now, if you invest in the individual deals, you will be subject to the performance of that specific deal. And the deals that you guys GP, do you have a team that you work with? Yeah. So I have different partners for the different things. So we try to avoid doing the deals everybody else is doing. So we're not doing like value add deals. We're not buying in Texas and Florida and the Carolinas. And there's nothing wrong with that model. I'm an LP in many, many of those deals. So this is not me throwing shade at that model. But the GP deals that we're doing, we're actually trying to stay local because we are asset managing them ourselves. So we have one deal in Pennsylvania because I'm in the central New Jersey area. So we have one deal in Pennsylvania. It's about two hours away. It's actually an affordable housing community. So this is not what many people associate with when they think of low income. This property looks like a class B, beautiful townhouses, plenty of parking spaces, safe, private area. So that's a 50 unit affordable housing community. And then we are also doing a short-term rental community on the shore. It's personally something I really wanted to do with short-term rentals and The shore is one of the only areas in Jersey that I would invest because it is a blue state. So because it's short-term rentals, you're not dealing with the tenant tenant landlord laws as much. So it's a little less of a headache. But those are the two deals that we're kind of doing on the general partnership side. 
affordable housing, what does that mean? Does that mean they get their rent subsidized? Yes. What happens is the community was built in 1998. So it was a very fresh property. So when it was built, it was mainly built through tax credits. And then it gets into a system where there's vouchers on it. And what I learned in the process is that there's project-based vouchers and tenant-based vouchers. And then they're just people that are getting utility allowances. So one shape or form, people are getting assistance, but that assistance varies. So what I've learned is there's a lot of value in the project-based vouchers over tenant-based vouchers because tenant-based vouchers will go with a tenant, but project-based vouchers actually stay with the property. So what ends up happening is if you get a bad tenant on a project-based voucher, you have a lot of leverage over them because if they're not strictly affirming to the lease, if you evict them, then what ends up happening is that voucher still stays behind with the property. So they lose that voucher. And because of that, they usually are some of the best acting tenants that are there versus the tenant-based vouchers. Usually they feel like the power is in their court because, hey, if I leave, I know people want my voucher. So one of our business plan, it's not the typical value add, hey, we're going to put granite countertops. One of the pieces of our business plan is actually to up the amount of project-based vouchers versus the tenant-based vouchers. So it's a very unique business model where it's not based on income. It's about controlling the tenant population there and making sure it's a safe and great, affordable community for the tenants. How do you up the project-based vouchers? You just apply. It's about relationships with the housing authority. My partner on this deal, he already has affordable housing with this housing agency. So it's all about relationships. It's just something we're going to just apply when we have it. The property also had vouchers that were not being used. And we're going to be able to go in and use those vouchers right away because there's a certain amount allocated to the property. And that means the next seven vacancies we could fill in from day one. So there's some cool, interesting aspects when you're dealing with affordable housing that you don't really see with typical class C and other properties. If somebody doesn't have a voucher and wants to pay full price, can they lease a unit at that property? They could, but there's incentives of doing the voucher. It's a higher market rent. So there's usually incentive to go through the vouchers. And we do have a contract with the housing authority. So we usually would try to stick with the vouchers, but we do have the option to also rent it out. You can't really turn me away though, can you? If I come in and say, hey, I'll pay you full price. I want this unit. Actually, there's already a waiting list. One of the benefits of doing affordable housing is because there are built-in waiting lists through the housing agencies. So it's not like we have to put this on apartments.com to fill it. The average occupancy since we went into contract has hovered between 98 to 100% with a waiting list. And that waiting list is months deep. So this is why I really like this space. And I think going forward, SIH Capital Group is going to really try to hone in on the affordable housing space because it's so much less competitive where it's not going to get bid by 35 different buyers because you need to understand the vouchers. You need to have affordable housing, property management background. You also need to have a relationship with the seller where they could feel confident that they will sell this property and will get approved by the state. So there are all these different little nuances where it allows a smaller buyer pool and much more of a relationship transaction than typically what you get when you're dealing with a commercial broker. I grew up about 10 miles from where you are in Homedale in central Jersey. And a lot of my buddies back there are like, man, there's no deals out here. Like you're lucky you're in the Midwest. You can't find a deal in Jersey. I don't buy that. You could find deals anywhere. How did you guys find this deal? 
So the affordable housing deal, that was directly through my partner purchased a property from them three years ago. So we're buying it from one of the largest affordable housing developers in the state and in the country. And he has a direct relationship with the disposition manager. That's how we got that deal. And the New Jersey deal that we got, which is the short-term rental community, that deal was also kind of off market where the broker's kid goes to school with one of my other partner's kid. So it was a very weird circumstances that we kind of just jumped on, but it was a very unique property. If you're familiar with the shore, the shore real estate is probably some of the most desirable. It's almost like the Hamptons situation, but on the Jersey shore. So this is like a mile away from Asbury Park. The location really sells the deal. It's a hard business plan to execute because we're going to have to be converting these to short-term rentals. So there's going to be heavy renovation. It's almost the complete opposite of the affordable housing deal because the affordable housing deal is a very simple, easy to follow business model. The short-term rental community is a little bit more complicated, but that's kind of what you need to be good at when you're putting a deal together in New Jersey. Because it is a blue state, there are certain complications that don't allow it to be like a, oh, the market rent is 2,500. The rent here is 1,700. I'm going to purchase it and bump it up. And then when you're dealing with the state of New Jersey, no, it's not that simple because while there's no rent control, there's a term in Jersey where it says, if you raise rent over a certain amount, it's unconscionable. And what the term unconscionable is, is completely subjective on how the judge feels that day. So it could be a dollar increase or it could be a $600 increase. So just my point is, it's that it's not that the deals are not fair. It's just you need to be more creative with the deals to make them work in a blue environment. But you can't replace a location that's four blocks away, 40 minutes outside of New York City. Yeah. So you got these deals based on your network. That's it. Yeah. It's that simple. So all you yeah. guys out there that are complaining about no deals, build your network, extend your network. Yeah. Right? Both deals. There, put yourself out there. Both deals were actually offered to me basically day one where my partner toward the affordable housing community texted me that day. He said, are you in? And then I was at the same time meeting up with the other deal in Jersey. So both deals were presented to me. It's not like I personally found the deal, but I just jumped on it when I got the opportunity. All right, let's dive into the numbers on the affordable housing project. It's 50 units. Is that right? Yeah. And I just got to keep it high level because we're closing this month and it's a 506B. So I'm going to keep it very, very high level for the affordable housing, if you don't mind. Yeah. Tell me what you could tell me. Okay. So it's 50 units, 100% occupied, built in 1998. We have five project-based vouchers, but we have up to 12 that we can use. So there's seven vacancies we could fill, about 18 tenant-based vouchers. The rest have utility allowance. We're getting Freddie on it. The other big, big advantage when you're dealing with affordable housing is you get expedited service through the mortgage brokers. So we kind of jumped the line on the mortgage queue. And we're Why getting about, that? well, we're going with Freddie and they have a mandate for affordable housing. So if two deals go to the brokers at the exact same time, they will expedite the affordable housing over a regular deal every day of the week. You're from Jersey. You sure you're not paying off somebody? Paying no, off the mortgage <laughs> no. <on. laughs> this was just a benefit that we actually didn't know about since day one. But when we started finding out about the delays that are going on right now, we definitely were appreciative of this benefit. And we also got a reduction on the mortgage. So we got about a half a percent 
off. So we were going to be looking at 3.8. We're coming down to like 3.3 and potentially a little lower because the rates kind of dipped down a little bit. So we're going to be locking in about a week or two in that range. So we're getting a nice reduction, but we can't take any IO. So that, that was a little bit of the downside, but we're going to be paying down principal day one. You can't take, what's IO? Uh, interest only. Uh, okay. And what's your down payment on this? I think 25%. So I think we're going to be at 74% LTV on this. We'll get back to the show in a few minutes, but first some sponsors I'm confident you'll get some value in learning more about. How are you doing on your goals this year? Whether it's planning for your goals or whether it's executing on those goals, I imagine one of them has to do with financial freedom, taking control of your finances. And I can tell you that is a possibility within the next one to three years using a proven system created by my friend, Michael Blanc. He's got the program Deal Maker Mentoring. Here are some of his students who have been in the program and what they've accomplished. Melanie McDaniel, she closed her first 24-unit joint venture deal and is now pivoting to become full-time in the industry. Within five months of joining, Cheryl Groovy from Atlanta, she had a 34-unit deal under contract. And she partnered with two other dealmaker mentoring students, and together they raised $700,000. And Brian Briscoe, he said thanks to dealmaker mentoring, he had the opportunity to accelerate his timeline and go after much bigger deals than he would have on his own. If you are ready to commit to achieving your dreams this year and you've been thinking about getting into multifamily, well, text the word Joe to 66866. Again, that's the word Joe. You know how to spell my name, right? J-O-E to 66866. Do it right now while it's fresh on your mind, and let's get you started with your own syndication business. Deals and money. We are constantly seeking deals and money as real estate investors, and I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate. And follow-up boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals or you can follow up with your investors and you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners, then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The follow-up boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Follow-up boss offers experts seven days a week. You can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial, twice the length of the normal trial. For a limited time, go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Can you tell us roughly what you're buying each door for? Yeah, total sales price is 5.725 and it's 50 units. So a little over 100 a door. Okay. What are your rents right now? They're ranging between 1100 for the two bedrooms and 1300 for the threes. And they're okay. all threes and twos. And then can you raise these rents over time? So the here, program? So here's the interesting place. If you look at 99 out of 100 syndications, the typical business model is geared towards the income. 
besides a few little levers that usually operators will use, the focus of every business plan has always been on the income side. Put the nice flooring down, fix up the kitchen and get an extra 200 bucks a month. Over here, the business plan is so simple because the operating expenses are in the high 70s. So the real opportunity here is to bring it down to a lower level. The industry norm for 1998 built is probably in the 50s. And just by doing that, we would be able to successfully execute the business plan. How will you cut expenses? We have a lot of these from day one. We already got the insurance quotes came down. A lot of it's through relationships. One of the GPs on this deal is the property manager on my partner's other deal. So the current property manager is charging the current seller 9%. We're already at 4%. We're doing a water conservation program since day one. So we have five or six levers that we're going in literally day one. We're going to be getting rid of about $140,000 worth of expenses in year one. And Dennis, is this similar to a section eight deal where if you add a washer and dryer, you get to increase rents. If you add amenities, rents go up. You have to be careful. So you got to check on what you could do or what you can't do. For example, during due diligence, we found out that every single person has a dog and the lease definitely says you're not allowed to have a dog. But the good thing is this is five acres and it's townhouses and there's a lot of families there. So we actually don't mind the dog situation, but we don't want to close our eyes and pretend that the dogs are not there because dogs do cause some damage. So we, day one, we're going to put a little pet park there and we're going to charge pet fees. So we had to check with the housing agency that pet fees were allowed to be charged because now you're bringing up their income to a higher amount than normal. So you can do certain fees. You just have to check with the housing agency that it's okay. The current seller also has laundry and dryers for every single unit, and that's not being charged. And they're also fixing them up when they break. So that's a really nice amenity. So we just plan on just charging a washer and dryer fee, really just to subsidize when these things start breaking. We're not really looking to generate much extra revenue from it. But every single one of these things that we're looking to add, it's kind of like we're going to be checking with our property manager who's checking in with the housing authority. So it's not as simple as other deals where you could just do it and just do it. So it's an extra layer of compliance. I got to ask you a question. And this comes from every time I buy a property, when I buy a building, I usually improve the lighting, the landscaping, the signage to let the tenants know, hey, this new landlord is actually going to improve the property. You guys are going in and you're going to start charging all these fees. How do you reassure the tenants that they're in good hands? We are very fortunate that this place is 100% occupied. This place is already safe. So we don't have to go in and do a lot of neglecting. We don't have to fix a lot of neglected items, I want to say, but we are also going to be fostering a certain culture where we're not going to say, look, hey, we're not going to pretend you don't have pets, right? But in exchange, we are also going to build a pet park where you, your dogs can come and run and there's going to be places for you to get the dog bags. So it's more about explaining to the tenants that we are adding value by doing those kind of things. And now you don't have to hide your dog anymore. Because technically that's you breaking your lease and you could actually lose your apartment for that. This might not be a day one type of situation. This might be when the leases turn over, where we might be doing this as the leases turn over for the whole year, we're going to start implementing it. So it's not about we're going to go in there and just going to be, hey, we're charging you an extra $200 a month for stuff that you're already getting. It's more about, hey, we are going to be providing certain benefits. Here they are. And we expect an open dialogue of communication. Got it. And you're an investor with some of uh, Joe Fairless's deals. 
you've seen that they'll do ice cream socials, pizza parties. Would you do any of that? And then take it a step further. What if you bring in some financial literacy experts and educate some of these tenants on how to get ahead financially? Is that something you would consider doing? Yeah. So the first part with Joe's and his community. So one thing is this town is a really cute, it's like that hallmark type of downtown situation. Oxford, Pennsylvania. Okay. So it's about 20, 30 minutes south of Lancaster. It's a smaller town. Everybody kind of knows everybody. We went out and we went with a couple of investors to the local downtown and the cheapest meal I had in like, I don't know, in 20, 33 years of living in New York City. Tries Jersey though, that's, that's yeah. a problem. <laughs> yeah. So it's a very homey thing, but there's a bunch of these local businesses there on the strip. And I went into a comic shop and I got like a bunch of comics for my kids to bring home. And they were like literally a dollar each. I was like, how great would it be if we host a comic day? And we'll literally buy 100 comics, bring it out for the kids. We have a community room in the clubhouse. And we'll just get the kids to come out. They could pick out one or two comics. So we already have things like that to do where we're going to really try to incorporate as much local businesses as possible to that. And then on the flip side, the financial literacy program. I love the idea. I've seen an operator or two. I think the DeRosa group was working to implement something like that. I got to check with them how it actually works because a problem is sometimes with a lot of those free services, a lot of people won't sign up for them unless they have to pay for them. And then you obviously don't want to charge them. So I think that's going to be something that we would consider, but I would want to see some feedback on some of the operators that have done that already in the past and see how successful and if it was worth the time. One thing I will say is that my group, SIH Capital Group, one thing we wanted to do is we want to do like a scholarship and we want to do that scholarship where it'll be localized to the properties that we are GPs on. So for example, for the Oxford Village, because the short-term rental community, obviously this wouldn't apply for, for the Oxford Village deal, it won't be a huge scholarship, but maybe it'll do something every year that we own the property and it will just only be for the tenants that are there. Yeah, that's incredible. And I love the comic book idea. Two great ideas. So I commend you on that. Dennis, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Be a hundred percent okay to fail. I have to say my first mutual fund I ever invested in, complete failure. First individual stock I ever picked, complete failure. First crowdfunding deal I ever did, complete failure. First syndication I did, not a complete failure, but not a good deal. And every single time, the second deal was slightly better and the second trade was slightly better. And then it was just better and better. And that's the biggest piece of advice is if you're scared to make that wrong investment, you're just never going to invest. And that's the biggest mistake you can make because 10 years from now, I don't really remember the thousand dollars I lost on that mutual fund, right? It doesn't mean anything, but I do remember my whole stock portfolio that I built subsequently because of that mistake. So that's my best piece of advice. Just be happy to fail. Dennis, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Dennis, what's the best ever book you recently read? Oh my God. Okay. I am actually reading the five love languages for children. I don't even know if it's love languages, but it's a derivative of Gary Chapman's book. I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old and a three-year-old, and it's given me some interesting perspective on parenting. And the best book is always one that you could actually take and just relate right away to. So I would recommend that. It's an interesting book for any parents out there. Thank you. I didn't know there was a child edition of that book. I'll check that out for sure. 
Dennis, what's the best ever way you like to give back? It's definitely going to be more scholarships, more stuff in the communities that we are invested in. And it just feels like a natural extension to give back at the same time. And Dennis, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? The best way is if you're interested in a copy of my book, The Alternative Investment Almanac, that can be found on Amazon. But otherwise, the best way to reach out to me is on sihcapitalgroup.com. What I did is I created two abridged versions of my book. And if you sign up to my email list, you can get one of each. And then if you like what you see on the email list, please feel free to reach out. Dennis, I got to thank you again for being on the show today, sharing your story from starting out investing in stocks, getting into single family homes, and then becoming an LP investor, starting a fund and being a GP. Appreciate you sharing all of your lessons. Stay away from entire communities that are one bedrooms and all the other advice, man. So thank you again. Ash, it was awesome being here. Thank you so much. Best ever listeners, thank you so much for joining us and have a best ever day.